Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference, one word at a time. Now here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, my guest today describes himself as an author, filmmaker, speaker, and activist with a mission to help create a happy, healthy, and sustainable quality of life for America. Others who know him describe him as an icon in the industry, a constant voice of reason, a tireless and brilliant voice for work that fits the modern workforce, the real deal. He is John DeGraff, a documentary filmmaker since 1977. He's made more than 40 films, authored four books, including Affluenza, which is described by environmentalist Bill McKibben as an American classic. John has received more than 100 regional, regional, national and international awards for filmmaking. And he's taught filmmaking at the University of Washington, Evergreen State College and Boston University's Center for Digital imaging arts he's just released a brand new film it's called town between two worlds the gold rushes of nevada city and he's joining us today for the entire hour john DeGraff, welcome thank you thank you very much it's actually called redefining prosperity the gold uh, that was an old name before we okay <laughs> it's redefining prosperity okay i took it off nevada your city. website <laughs> i took uh, it off your website <laughs> all right so um that makes uh, more sense <laughs> now so um so I want to just share with listeners, first of all, how um, I first heard your name because I was new to the area. I didn't know anyone up in Seattle, but I befriended somebody at college and she went to this talent agent called Barbara Ray and asked me to go along with her. And so I, I went uh, just to keep her company. And um, as we were leaving, Barbara said to me, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm making a career transition because I was a senior manager in banking and I'm now writing, freelancing. And I'm thinking of going to uh, Washington University's documentary film program. And she said, do you know John DeGraff? And I said, no, I don't know anyone. (laughs) And so she gave me your name and number and said, uh, call him and... um, you know, pick his brains. And so I did. I got home that night and I called you after hours. I called the uh, station where you were working and uh, you very kindly called me back first thing next morning and said, well, I'm really swamped right now. You're right in the middle of the production. Um, But if you come down to KCTS, uh, we can have coffee in the cafeteria if that works for you. And that's what we did. And and I did go to University of Washington based on your feedback. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that was a long time ago. Ah, yeah, Barbara, is a, that's a, a name from the past. I'm wondering how she's doing. <laughs> I haven't heard from her. I, I don't know either. So um, let's talk about, um, you've been a documentary filmmaker for public television since 1977. You were an independent uh, in-house producer at KCTS. So how does that work if you're in-house but you're also independent? Well, KCTS gave me a place to work, uh, and then we worked on projects together uh, by on a contract-by-contract basis, and uh, uh, they would often provide some kinds of in-kind services, a little bit of camera work or editing, and I would find the cash money involved for 
travel, uh, all the other kind of cash expenses that were involved. And then since I had the place and I had them as a partner, it made it easier to, to raise the funds. Mm-hmm. And so had you always wanted to be a filmmaker? Because didn't you go to college for, was it sociology? Yeah, I, I started in sociology, and I, I college and I were never on the best of terms. <laughs> and so I, I'm a, I, I often say that my bio, biography is a simple one. Uh, goes like this. John DeGraff left uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the eternal regret of his mother, John DeGraff left <laughs> college before graduation to become a community organizer. In penance, he vowed to live simply a decision reinforced by his profession as a documentary filmmaker. That kind of sums it up. So (laughs) I was an activist first, and then I I got into radio first in uh, northern Minnesota and uh, met an old character who I thought someone should do a film about, and I ended up being the person to do that and working with some people at the University of Minnesota to do that. We gave it to public television. Um, They liked it, aired it, won some awards, and started me in a career. And that's been it. Have you ever, um, because I mean, you've been doing this over 40 years now, so have you ever thought, I'm jacking all this in and doing something different? Well, I was always doing other things. So I never, I I guess I would say that for 15 years or so, I really was doing it on a full-time basis. But after I made my most popular film, which was called Affluenza, that came out in 1997, I got a lot of requests to speak various places. I got asked by an agent to work with him in developing a book, which was then published. And I decided that I actually liked, again, the life of speaking and writing uh, books and articles and things as much as I liked filmmaking. So I kind of reduced my filmmaking to about halftime from that point and, uh, and started doing these other things, wrote a couple of books, a lot of articles, and did a lot of public speaking and started three three uh, somewhat less than successful organizations, but they're still going. They're still going. We, I want to talk about those in a bit, but um, I want to let's talk about the film, first of all, because it premiered in Seattle last week, Redefining Prosperity. Right. And it is about Nevada City. And, you know, I lived in California for a long time. That was my introduction to living in America. And I always thought Nevada City was this kind of grungy, old gold mining town that was like semi-abandoned but when I saw your film I came away thinking I'd like to go check that place out. (laughs) So tell us when you first went to Nevada City how you got involved in doing this why you wanted to make the film. Well actually it's I'm I'm somewhat uh, embarrassed to say this but they have a film festival there in Nevada City uh, that some years ago named an award for me That's right. and brought me down to present the award each year to the filmmaker that was getting the award. And in the course of doing that, I've probably been there now eight or nine times to this festival, I came to know the town, uh, to know the people, and uh, just was amazingly impressed by what a group of people they are, how engaged they are in their community, and uh, what brought them together across some pretty serious political and other divides. And and that's the subject, in a way, of the film. It was the fight to save a beautiful river, the Yuba, from power dams and the 16-year struggle that brought people together. Right. And you look at some of the history um, of the city itself and how it grew and how it changed from gold mining to logging to then the hippies came in and mm-hmm. and, and now it's it's trying to be a very self-sustainable city. 
um, I left with a feeling of of hope, if you will, that, um, you know, we don't all have to buy into this crass commercialism that we're <laughs> surrounded by. Um, what what are your feelings about the city itself? Well, I think it is a hopeful story, and I, I, I think it does attract people who, who uh, like to be engaged in the community, who uh, like the easy access to nature that is around there. And it is a beautiful town. I mean, it was the town you're describing, the sort of grungy, falling into disrepair, old gold rush town in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And then some people sort of discovered it and said, well, number one, this could be a tourist town. Uh, we could fix it in, in ways that would attract people to come here because it has all these beautiful buildings from the gold rush days. And then secondly, the hippies or the back to the land movement arrived in the area, kind of led by a, a famous poet, Gary Snyder. And uh, they had other ideas uh, about, you know, making a place really a sense to create a sense of community and, and a place where people would want to stay and to create some alternative institutions, both uh, organic farming, uh, progressive education, things of that sort. And so you had for some time, uh, probably 15 years or more, an uneasy tension between the older residents, uh, sometimes referred to as the rednecks or the, <laughs> right. the locals, and uh, the new residents referred to as the hippies. And and uh, that was, an, sometimes they threw rocks at each other. I mean, they, there was not a lot of love there. Uh, but when that river was threatened in 1983, they came together because both factions of the community really loved that place. And, and they spent 16 years and eventually got protection for that river uh, permanently. And now the community is uh, works together. They don't always agree on everything, but they work together on sure. a lot of things. Yeah. It's amazing what people can do when they, when they do pull together. I think I heard you say at the premiere that um, there's another, was it um, Viejo? There's another city that is looking at doing a similar kind of uh, thing. Well, they call it Vallejo, actually, but it is, I guess you, in Spanish it would be Vallejo. But Vallejo, California is a, um, a wonderful town. It's, a, it's the opposite of Nevada City. Nevada City is very small. It's not diverse. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, a, a town of young people and old people. Vallejo, uh, on the other hand, is a very gritty, very diverse, uh, large city of about 150,000 people. Uh, it's a port at the north end of San Francisco Bay that was the home to the U.S. Navy's shipbuilding uh, during World War II and to the Navy somewhat afterwards until the Navy pulled out in the late 90s and left the town, you know, an economic mm -hmm. disaster area in some ways and, and uh, went into bankruptcy, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, other kinds of things. But Vallejo is coming back to life, and part of the way they're doing that is in a campaign to make their city beautiful and to attract artists and to attract creatives and to really bring nature into the city by restoring wetlands, reforesting neighborhoods, uh, creating new parks, preserving open space. They have an activity called uh, an annual festival called uh, Visions of the Wild about nature in the city to get their kids involved in that. And I've been really impressed by what Vallejo is trying to do right, uh, and, right. and find it a wonderful place. It's a tough place. I mean, it's not the first place people would think of when you talk about a beautiful city. Right, right. Seattle has grown so much over the last 20 years since I've lived here. I mean, it, when I first moved here, it was, don't tell people you came from California, Vicky. <laughs> but, but now we meet people from all over. Everywhere. 
Yeah. And do you think we, we've obviously lost that small sense of community. Do you think it's um, too late to recapture some of it? Or is it is it really dependent upon small pockets within the community, within the larger community? Well, probably small pockets in the case of Seattle. Uh, I, I don't see us recovering that too much unless we find some way to slow the growth. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't know exactly how to do that, but the one thing I, I don't think we should be doing is giving tax breaks and various things to encourage more growth. I think we're, we're plenty rich enough, and many of our problems, including homelessness, and other kinds of things are the result, more the result of too much money than too little. Right, right. And I know that you're about looking for wealth in other areas than just the, just cash value. So we'll we'll dive into some of the activism work you've done. We, mm-hmm. we need to take a quick break first. My guest is uh, filmmaker John DeGraff. Uh, his new film is called Redefining Prosperity. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please do stay with us. We'll be right back. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Kathy Cooper, and every Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll be hosting Lost and Found. We'll be discussing all types of losses, but it's not going to be the doom and gloom hour. It'll be an hour of education, support, validation, and yes, we will have a little bit of humor. So won't you join me Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m., Lost and Found, because every loss matters, and through every loss, something can be found. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today get inspired every hour right here on alternative talk 1150 and welcome back everyone welcome back my guest today is john degraff a seattle filmmaker author 
speaker and activist. His new film just came out. It's called Redefining Prosperity. And um, John, I wanted to dive a little into some of the activism work that you do, because um, even though you are a filmmaker, you're an author and speaker activist, it, it's all integrated to some extent. And I read that um, Kathy O'Keefe, who's a faculty of University of South Alabama, said that your activism, John's activism, springs from the ideals and passion of John Muir. Is that a fair statement? Oh, I think it's a very fair statement. Uh, uh, Muir was my hero growing up, and I think it all came from the fact, I've written about this, that my father, I grew up in San Francisco, and my, my father took me backpacking to Yosemite when I was very young. And by the time I was of high school age, my best friend and I were allowed to go to Yosemite in the, the Sierra for four to six weeks in the summer on our own and just backpack and hitchhike to get food and do those kind of things. And so I, I, I think I learned a lot of lessons. And in the mean, meantime, of course, we read a lot of John Muir. He was, right. he was our passion. And John Muir still influences me. Uh, I think John Muir was somebody who was all about quality of life and beauty and things of that sort, and that's what mattered to him, not, uh, not a lot of stuff. Right. And, and that's always influenced me and still does. Right, right. Um, I, you've said that I believe that all of us must work actively for justice and sustainability. A lot of people don't feel responsible for that. Do you, do you think we should take more responsibility? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a scold or a <laughs> preacher about this. But, right. yeah, I mean, I, I think that the fact is that things are not getting better uh, in this country. And uh, all of the anger and polarization reflects that. And uh, I think we have serious, serious problems on our hand, uh, the, the most important, of course, of which is, is global warming, which might get us all if we don't start to do something about it. I was really impressed by this 15-year-old Swedish girl who, recently addressed uh, the United Nations saying, you know, hey, if you adults won't do it, then we kids are going to have to right. have to take the lead. So that, that and the, the growing inequality in our country, uh, which is just, to me, completely out of hand, uh, I think that's behind how angry we are and, and the level of our discourse and, and, and hostility and polarization that exists here, something which I'm trying to change. Mm. It, it amazes me that given that many of our policymakers have children and have grandchildren and even great-grandchildren, that they're not looking forward as far as they need to think. I mean, I have 13 nephews and nieces, and I wonder what it's going to be like for them in mm. 15, 20, 30 years. Um, so I, I agree with you. We have a, a responsibility to, to do our part. I just want to share some of the activism you've been involved sure. in with our listeners. You were um, co-founder and president of Take Back Your Time, co-founder of the Happiness Alliance, uh, former policy director of the Simplicity Forum, founder of Make America Beautiful Again, senior advisor to Earth Economics, board member of Earth Island Institute, advisor to the government of Bhutan in 2013, and in 2017, you were advisor. This made me laugh. I was thinking of Harry Potter advisor to the happiness ministry of the United Arab Emirates. And, and I share that because everyone that I've heard talk about you says, John DeGraff is one of the busiest people I know, um, and yet you still have time to do your part here. So um, I wanted to talk about 
taking back your time because I know that's a big thing uh, that you've been involved in. And I saw in 2014 you wrote an article about uh, an op-ed for New York Times. Um, and I can't see that things have improved. I, I actually think they've got a lot worse since then. But you write, um, it's not by accident that the United States has been called the no-vacation nation and uh, our vacations are shortest amongst the shortest in the world. W tell us what you have to say about this. Well, I've been working on this issue for quite some time. And when we started the Take Back Your Time campaign, which is about, you know, trying to deal, deal with the overworked and overbusy society that we see ourselves in in the United States, um, we didn't know what the facts were. And we started digging in and looking about, is it like this everywhere? And one thing we discovered was that the United States, now along with about four other very tiny and poor countries, are the only countries in the world that don't require paid vacation time for all of their workers. Yeah, stop there a minute, because yeah. that's really unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're the United States and four other countries. That's it. And they're all small, and Nepal, Burma, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we need to absorb that for a minute. I mean, really because we're the largest, you know, supposed to be the leader and the wealthiest, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah, if, if you live in Europe today, you start out after a year on the job with four weeks of paid vacation, no matter who you are. That's the law. And most people get five, six, and sometimes my French cousin gets eight. Uh, so um, I think people there are just aghast. They can't believe. I've talked to Rick Steves about this, the, the travel writer. Right, he says, right. you know, he, Europeans just think we're crazy. That yeah, they we do. don't. <laughs> <laughs> Relax. We don't take time off. The Australians get 30 days. The Brazilians get 30 days. People in Togo get 30 days. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's quite stunning that this rich, rich country cannot, uh, that, that we have 25% of Americans, maybe even a few more, that get zero paid right. vacation time. And um, the average in this country is, is less than two weeks. Right. That's stunning, I think. And maybe even more stunning is that of those who do get paid vacation, the, a large percentage of them don't actually take it. Well, that's and mostly the people who do get quite a bit who don't who don't take it all. I mean, the the people at the bottom do do take it. And uh, but yes, it's true that if you average everything out, uh, Americans give back something like three or four days per person of vacation time that they actually have coming. They don't yeah. take it. Uh, according to uh, projecttimeoff.org, mm -hmm. uh, we actually last year in 2017 forfeited 212 million days, which is equivalent to $62.2 billion in lost benefits. Right. And they say that had Americans used our vacation time, it would have actually generated 1.9 million jobs. That's probably true because the tourist industry is the largest overall industry uh, in the country and perhaps in the world. And so jobs are definitely generated uh, by this. I think Washington State, we see that. And it's one of the reasons I've, one of the things we've used as an argument to try to win a paid vacation law here in Washington State. We've done that a couple times in the legislature. So far, no luck, but we're not stopping. Right. And study after study shows that we all benefit from time off, our, you know, our brains need to de-stress. We need to. I unplug frequently, much to the annoyance of people around me, because they can't reach me for 24 hours. But come on, <laughs> none, none of us are that important, right? <laughs> well, well, it just drives so much impatience and <laughs> lack of attention span, 
and all of those kind of things. So I think you're absolutely right to do that. And and I think we need to, uh, we're just behind the whole world in this. Uh, Washington State, I, I am very happy to report just next on January is going to be starting as the, the best state in the United States in ta- terms of paid family leave mm. uh, with three months of, of essentially full paid leave and people can't even take a fourth month and shared by parents and stuff. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a real important step forward because we are the only country in the world except Papua New Guinea that doesn't guarantee uh, at least paid, paid maternity leave for mothers when they have wow. a baby. that's staggering. Well, I want to talk about uh, something else you've been involved in, and that's uh, making America beautiful again. But uh, we'll take a break so we don't have to interrupt on that. Uh, you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is John DeGraff. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Do something different with your spare time. Give baby animals at Paws a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, Paws helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a Paws foster care volunteer. For more information, visit paws.org or 425-787-2500. Paws.org or 425-787-2500. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's see if I... I guess that... (sighs) This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. 
Learn more at conversationslive.net. Going our own way every day. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. My guest is John DeGraff. He's an author, filmmaker, speaker, and activist with a mission to help create a happy, healthy, and sustainable quality of life for America, which leads me into my next question, John. I want to learn a little bit more about your project. Uh, I think it's a foundation, Make America Beautiful Again. You say you changed the name at some point on that. So let's talk a little bit about what was the premise behind that and what's happening. Well, uh, I was troubled by how polarized we'd become as a country. And uh, I uh, was looking for some way, and I'd uh, both had the story of Nevada City, where people came together to save a beautiful river. So that led me to believe that beauty might be something that could could bring us together. And then I, I was reading a, a statement by Doug Tompkins, who is the founder of the Esprit and North Face clothing giants. And he said, if anything can save the world, I'd put my money on beauty, which he did. He sold the companies and bought an enormous amount of wild land in South America, which is now a, a huge national park. But anyway, I thought someone should test that. Uh, I, I think maybe he's got something there. So originally I called the idea Make America Beautiful Again. People liked the idea, but not the name. And uh, they said either if they were pro-Trump, they said they thought it was sliding Trump, or if they were anti-Trump, they <laughs> thought it reminded them of Trump. So either way, they didn't like it. And uh, so we came up together actually with a couple of focus groups with uh, the, the name And Beauty For All. And that's our website, andbeautyforall.org. The idea is that, uh, and was original. We we're going to be beauty for all, but that's L'Oreal's slogan, so we couldn't. That's right. <laughs> we couldn't use that, so it's and beauty for all, liberty, justice, and beauty for all. And um, I think people liked that name. Uh, some people see it in some ways as as a, as another way of saying environmental justice. The environmental part being the beauty of nature, the beauty of of good urban surroundings that encourage people to walk and talk and not drive everywhere. Uh, and the for all, meaning that everyone ought to have a right to the beauty in the country, no matter who they are, how poor they are, and, and so forth. So um, I've been working on that with that name now for a little over a year and a half. And uh, it's gone slowly because people have been very busy <laughs> these days. But uh, I think it's starting to pick up steam, and I've had a, some nice recent conversations uh, about it, of course, with the city of Vallejo, uh, but also um, I spoke to the California Association of Resource Conservation Districts uh, recently in San Diego. and These are all rural folks, for the most part, who you do land use, and they cross the, completely crossed the political spectrum and got a good response there, and then also have started to reach out and publish a little bit in, in conservative publications about this and find that it is an issue that appeals across the political spectrum. Right. And so what's your long-term hope on that, your long-term desire for that? Well, my desire is that we uh, do some of the things that I care about anyway, which is protect and restore the environment. Uh, I think we ought to do... Uh, Instead of digging more coal, for example, out of West Virginia and Kentucky and all those places, we ought to be putting people to work restoring those cut-off mountaintops and replanting them so that they become beautiful again and, and they become life-giving and people can stay there in their communities and work. 
but I also think we re- need to redesign cities so that they are like many of the cities that I see in Europe. They're walkable. They're they're lovely. They have lots of greenery and parks and encourage people to, to uh, get out of their cars. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a great visit with uh, the director of transportation for Vienna who said that they'd They'd re- really designed their metro system around beauty, and doing so increased ridership tremendously, uh, and people were less stressed. They, they got out of their cars. Uh, they put a lot of greenery and places to walk between the metro stations separate from busy streets. Mm-hmm. People were willing to walk three, four times as far. So I'm thinking we can be inspired to make some of these kinds of changes in our community, and we have a history of doing this. Right, right. I have a friend who moved back from New York, and of course, they walk and subway everywhere mm-hmm. there. And she lived in Seattle for a while and just couldn't stand the traffic and the congestion and having to get in her car just to go to the grocery store. So she spent a considerable amount of time trying to find a city where she could move and walk like she could in New York. I don't know that she found the ideal situation, but she did eventually move um, because I think it's important to a lot of people. Yeah, it is. It's good for our health. Uh, you know, it's it's good for uh, happiness, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, two recent surveys, one by Gallup and the other by the University of South Carolina Upstate, it's called, which is in Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, have found that a city being beautiful and being perceived as, as it, by its inhabitants as beautiful ranks right there at the top in terms of what makes people want to stay in a place Mm -hmm. and also in terms of who are the most satisfied folks with their life, lives in those cities. Right. I have to say when I left San Diego, and I I did want to leave after 13 years, almost 14 years there, um, it was really hard to find somewhere else that I found pretty in comparison because it it was so pretty down there, you know, very beautiful. And every time I'd fly somewhere else and I'd come back, I'd just think, how can I leave it? It's so pretty. <laughs> it is lovely. Yeah, no, it is lovely. And I mean, I think there are beautiful places uh, and we can make places more beautiful. I I tend to, you know, spend time in Europe and I, I love the small towns and right. the cities in, in Europe where my relatives live and other things because there is a lot of attention paid to making them uh, beautiful and making them walkable and making them places where... There are tables and benches so people will come together and, and right. talk to each other. And there are plazas. And uh, and uh, we try to do that here. A hundred years ago, we had a whole movement in uh, all around, across, around the country. It was responsible for all the, for what beautiful parkways and some of the parks and the green places and stuff we have in Seattle. It was called the City Beautiful Movement. And uh, it... Uh, it did a lot, and it, it, the whole idea is where cities should be civic places where people come together, and they should have a lot of beauty and a lot of greenery because we know now from study after study after study that having green around and having nature around is good for our health and our happiness. Mm-hmm. I, it keeps me sane. I spend a lot of time in nature, I must say, um, mm-hmm. and that's my sanity thing. And if, you know, I went, I experienced a great deal of burnout this year, and I'm still kind of recovering from it but Mm. um i find that if i can get out in nature for at least an hour a day and just do nothing i walk with my dog um it it's so valuable and um even if i'm like sometimes i need to be by water the water is uh, just Mm -hmm. meditative and and absolutely causes a lot of um 
stress to fall away. So um, let's talk about happiness because mm-hmm. we've talked about happiness on the show with various people who've traveled and explored and you know looked at studies on this. And I know uh, this is part of your mission too. Um, what do you think, um, what are you working on in that vein that, uh, that fits in with this package? Well, right now it's beauty, you know, which I think is a, a very underrated aspect of, of happiness. I did have the opportunity of speaking at a number of international conferences when I was working in the Take Back Your Time campaign. I was invited to speak to these conferences on happiness because time balance uh, and not being stressed out by time is one thing that that happiness researchers recognize as important for happiness. And the little country of Bhutan, which I was invited to spend some time right. as an advisor to the government some time back, really believes that time balance is an important part of their nine domains, as they call them, of happiness. And so um, the, these things are uh, what you'd expect uh, Social connection, education, social support, uh, nature, uh, and, and um, you know, uh, good government, transparent, d- democratic government are, are things that matter for happiness. It's not just about money. That, that's what these countries know, that having the highest GDP doesn't guarantee anything. We have to have these other things. Uh, the one thing I think, though, hasn't been looked at enough is is beauty, and I think we're, start, we're starting to do that in these new surveys are showing that access to and, and living in beautiful surroundings is hugely important for how happy we are with our lives. Right. It's, a not, it's, it's something that we can do that isn't just a private purchase. It's something we can do as a society to make available for everyone and bring us together in that way. Right. I remember interviewing, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it was Ben Tal Shar, who's a professor at he taught classes at Harvard mm-hmm. and uh, he's Israeli and so he teaches also in Israel and he was in Israel when we spoke and he his class on happiness was the number one class ever at Harvard University mm-hmm. it was literally yeah. sold out yeah. yeah he couldn't get everybody in there though so it doesn't matter yeah. what age people are um, there's this it's been the there's case. a gap also at Princeton and Stanford and, and yeah. other schools that have done that yeah. Um, okay, let's take a break. And um, I want to dive into a whole other area here when we come back. <laughs> so much to talk about here. My guest is John DeGraff, uh, filmmaker, author, speaker, and activist. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to best practitioner Dr. Nels Rasmussen, we cover the world of animals. This week, December 16th, it's Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I'd love to hear from you with any questions you have about behavior training or healing, and you can also call in about any animal-related issue or cause you'd like to talk about. Open phone lines throughout the show. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 11. 
opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is gonna help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth, spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. At Sundown Communications, we find that most of our clients are brilliant at what they do, but they lack the time and resources to write and create business messaging that delivers results. That's where we come in, providing a diverse range of professional copywriting services for fresh strategic web content, PR, advertising and promotion, marketing, speeches, and much more. Call us today so you can focus on what you do best, and we'll do the rest. Call 800-495-7617. That's 800-495-7617. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable it is at conversationslive.net. Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. And welcome back, everyone. I am talking with John DeGraff. He's here in the studio with us today. Uh, His new film, Redefining Prosperity, just premiered. And John, I want to ask you before I forget, I read that you were writing your memoir. You've got such a huge body of work. I mean, lots to write about. Is that finished? No, it's not finished. It's actually nearly finished. It's nearly finished. Um, I keep having trouble with the last chapter, so it's, <laughs> it's been nearly finished now for a number of years. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but things don't slow down, and, and I'm still doing lots of things, and so there's sort of no conclusion yet. Well, it's good, I think, that you're still doing stuff rather than just writing about what you did do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when you look, Mostly about what other people did. I mean, it's it's a lot of it's the stories of the stories of people that I met and whose stories I told in my films. Uh, okay. So th- when you look back at your body of work, I mean, people are always impressed by it, I think. Does, does it feel impressive to you? Do you look back and think, wow, I did all that, all that stuff? Or how, d- how do you feel about it? You know, yeah, it does, actually. I'm uh, kind of surprised and, and pleased and feel, feel good about it, I think. Um, you know, you, you, you always wish you'd done something else, this or that, at the same time. But... But we we have to get over that to a degree. We have to understand when enough is enough, and right. and and not be so hard on ourselves. Because I think we are. I think we're just in this such a competitive society and stuff that we just judge ourselves and and being kind of constantly productive. And there's there's something wrong with that. Right. There's so much emphasis today put on having your personal brand, building your personal brand. Is that something you've ever worried about? Being concerned about? I don't think so. I mean, I've I've had to worry about it a little bit just in order to attract support for uh, my shows and to to fundraise. You know, I've had to build up the resume a little bit and and present myself as the one capable of doing doing this. But it's certainly not something that I enjoy. Right, right. So let's let's talk about storytelling. A um, couple of questions that I had come in from people when they knew you were coming here. Um, but I want to talk about storytelling first because, you know, we're always told uh, story has to have beginning, middle and end true. But I think when you're writing um, and, and that's true, whether you're writing film or script, whatever. Um, but when you're making a nonfiction film, it's, it's not that simple. There has to be more to it than that. 
And one of the things that I think you do extraordinarily well um, is pick characters to tell your story. We'll use the latest one, Redefining Prosperity, as an example. Um, so what considerations go into your film so that you feel you have a good story here and not just a series of interviews? Well, I think that is the important thing is kind of thinking about, uh, you know, overall what this story is. I, I also like the idea of metaphor. Uh, I think it's a good way to tell, to tell stories and, and have them stick with people. So my most popular documentary by far was Affluenza, which is obviously a sort of humorous metaphor for a society that's got a, a virus of over of overconsumption right. and doing that allowed me to, to create the story in a way in which I could look at the symptoms of this supposed dread disease the epidemiology or history of the disease and then later some of the things you could do about it the, the cures or treatment so there was a structure there uh, with Nevada City the metaphor I used was the idea of what is wealth and that uh, Nevada City was the home to different gold rushes, but the, the point was that was, people had a different idea of what gold was. So the first idea one was the, the real gold rush of the 1850s in which the land was desecrated, the native people were either killed or driven away. Uh, things were, you know, it was all about money, about greed, about that kind of gold. Now the second gold rush, as I saw it, was uh, when the Back to the Landers came in the late 60s and 70s. And their idea of gold or wealth was a, a sense of community, uh, a place with nature and beauty, a sense of connection uh, as, uh, as they looked at it, uh, what they call bioregionalism. And that's a different idea of gold. And now there's a third gold rush and that in California, and it's kind of green gold, it's, it's marijuana. And the question is, you know, where that's going to go in a place like Nevada City? Will it be like the original gold rush in which... The environment is desecrated and everybody's just out to make money on pot? Or will it be a thing where it's, it's a sustainable and smart industry that helps people and, and helps the environment? And we don't know yet. Right, right. And you had such great characters tell the story in that film. It was the lady who was the former mayor of Nevada City and she was the first female to walk across Alaska solo. Mm -hmm. um, you had a great quote here that I loved. I just wanted to share because it, it kind of sums it all up, really. It's, it, community stewardship can happen anywhere. It just comes from loving a place enough to take care of it. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and I think that's the way a lot of people there feel. That quote is from Caleb Dardick, who was, uh, he grew up in the local counterculture. He was a kid. His his parents moved They uh, from Missouri. They were lived in suburban St. Louis. Uh, they moved out to Nevada City. They didn't know what they were doing. They bought land there and uh, and cleared it. And uh, they were suburbans without without these rural skills. But they learned these things. And his life growing up in that community was was a marvelous one. Of where people helped each other and took care of each other. And and uh, he carried that over that sense of working together into the struggle to save the Yuba River and to work together with with people that they didn't always agree with. Right. Right. Um, so I have a question from a, a, li a listener up in Canada. He's up in the Toronto area, but he's in BC right now. And he's working, he does work in film. And he said, how have you managed to sustain a career for as long as you have in a creative field that's very competitive and also not known for, for paying very well? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's struggling right now. 
Well, it's been up and down, absolutely. And uh, it, it took me a while before I could do documentary making as a full-time uh, job. And, uh, and, then, and then it was very up and down. So you have to live simply. You have to, to uh, you know, reduce your wants in a, in a material sense, I think. And then, you know, there was a time in my life where I got paid pretty well. Uh, and it was a period when uh, the kind of work I was doing was really rewarded well. And uh, I was able to get a lot of good grants from big foundations like Rockefeller and Ford and Pew and put some of that away if I, if I could. Uh, after the, the crash in 2008, that ended. Mm-hmm. And it's been very difficult, I will say, uh, since that time. And so I've had to put together... Um, earning a little bit here and there from honorariums from speaking, earning something for a little bit from, from writing, uh, from the books that I have, have written. Uh, Affluenza is a book sold well. My book, uh, What's the Economy for Any Way, that I did with Dave Batker, a local economist here. Uh, we did pretty well on that book. And so it's catch as catch can, um, but um, I, I don't regret it, uh, but... I have to say that it wasn't, sometimes it was easy and sometimes it was everything but. Right, right. And I think uh, these days, you know, people out by themselves as independent creatives, whatever field they're in, very rarely have one title to (laughs) to their job description anymore. Um, It's like you take it from wherever it comes, basically. Well, and one one thing, for instance, was being at the right time in certain things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when my wife and I bought our home, it was affordable to us. We could never buy the same place today. Uh, you know, we, we just happened to get it 20 plus years ago. And right. I, I think that's what a, a, young, a lot of young people now are just facing a situation. Number one, they come out of school with enormous debts. And number two, they're facing a housing market that's absolutely obscenely uh, high and inflation and all kinds of things. So I don't know how they can do it, uh, right, right. and I, I feel for them. Yeah, very hard. So um, outside of your work and outside of, you know, looking for beauty, what inspires you creatively? What, gives, what gets your juices going creatively? Well, I like to read, and I like to read novels and stories and, and, and things, and I love history, so I'm always fascinated. Right now I'm sort of obsessed with, the first uh, the the period in American history between about 1893 and 1920, I think it was the most uh, uh, the the most fruitful, fascinating time in our history in which every kind of new idea and movement flourished. So I mentioned City Beautiful before, but there were was also progressive education and what was called nature study, the arts and crafts movement, the country life movement the conservation movement where we got our national forests and parks, um, the, the progressive movement where the rise of organized labor, the, the fight for pure food and drugs. Uh, right. Everything amazing and fascinating in our, in our history, I think, came together at one time, the right to vote for women all over the country. All of these things were happening in that period, which starts for me with the the authorship in 1893 of the song America the Beautiful, which to me really is a song that we don't understand, and mm-hmm. it ought to be our national anthem, because it really says that, what it says is that we live in a beautiful country, 
And it's really important that we make our institutions and the way we treat each other equal to the beauty of, of the country uh, and that we care about those kind of things. And, and I think it was the beginning of a critique of the Gilded Age that had come from the 1870s up, up to that time where every, all of the obsession was on making money, on the rise of banking and, and oil and steel and, and, and so forth. Uh, it was a counter to that. America, America, may God thy gold refine, the song said. So right. thinking, thinking in different terms. And I think that was what that whole period, up until World War I ended it, was all about. Yeah, I love that you said that about the, uh, the song America the Beautiful, because it, it's a song that I can't listen to without crying. I remember standing in Disneyland hearing it for the first time and flooding, <laughs> flooding with tears. It's a very powerful song, and to me that... That was America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was written, incidentally, by a woman who, who was an open lesbian. She lived with her partner, mm-hmm. which in 1893 was kind of seen as scandalous. Right, uh, right. She was also, she called herself a Christian socialist. Um, she was not some hyper, you know, patriotic person that we might think and—, and uh, the the song is really a call to America to our better angels and not to the kind of stuff we've seen in this country lately. Right, right. What's the best career advice you received when you were a few years back? What's the best and what's the worst? Oh, my. Uh, I think uh, that, that's a hard one. Um, because I don't know that I got, quick. I don't I know that I got too much career advice. <laughs> no, you just figured it out as you went along. I, 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 it was a calling for me. I, I, I couldn't do anything else, and so I did what I did. That's perfect. I love it. I love it. Well, you're certainly a testament to following your calling. John, John DeGraff, it's been such a pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure us. was mine. Thank you. You can find out about John DeGraff and his extensive body at work at his website, johndegraff.com. And uh, we're right at the end of our show. I ran over a little, so th- thank you for being with us. You can find me um, at info at conversationslive.net and 495-800-495-7617 if you have questions or comments. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.